Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Dr. Nancy Raquel Mirabal. Dr. Mirabal is an Associate Professor of American Studies and U.S. Latina Latino Studies at the University of Maryland, College Park. She earned a PhD in history from the University of Michigan and has published widely in the fields of Afro-diasporic, gentrification, and spatial studies. She is the author of Suspect Freedoms, the Racial and Sexual Politics of Cubanidad in New York from 1823 to 1957 and co-editor with Deborah Vargas and Larry LaFontaine-Stokes of Keywords for Latina Latino Studies. Her next project examines the politics of gentrification, archival spaces, dissonant discourses, and spatial inquiry. She is the recipient of numerous awards, ranging from fellowships from the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture to the Social Science Research Council. Thank you for joining us today, Nancy. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So you're from Southeast Los Angeles. How did you become interested in examining the experiences of Afro-Latinos, especially Afro-Cubans, and challenging existing narratives surrounding them? Well, I mean, that's a great question. And what I like about this podcast and the work that you're doing, Michelle, is that it does the really important work of process and why scholars and activists and thinkers and researchers do the work that they do, which is so critical to understanding our field. Um, I started doing this work um, as an undergrad. Uh, early on, I started really looking at ethnic studies. My degree was in history because I wanted to be a journalist, but I took a course with Barbara Christian. I don't know if you remember her. She was an African-American, a Caribbean from St. Thomas, literary critic who really just changed my world. And I couldn't take enough classes with her. And she introduced me to uh, Toni Morrison and Jane Toomer and Alice Walker. And so um, and she became a mentor in a way. And then I started really kind of studying and looking at that history. And then I went to, I was lucky enough, I got accepted to the University of Michigan History Department. And that's when, um, as a result of Barbara Christian and her work and really thinking about narrative and history and what gets told and what doesn't get told and how many of these authors use fiction and writing to tell those stories, uh, I wanted to do the history of really those that haven't been told. And for me, it was the Latinx community. And when I got to graduate school, what I realized was, first of all, I was told that there was no such thing by an older white scholar. So I thought, oh, that made me even more, you know, <laughs> determined to do this, um, of course. But uh, really, it was this idea that Cubans, I'm Cuban, um, was, you know, all Cuban history, all Cuban experience was started in 1959 as a result of the Cuban revolution. And they all came out as exiles and they were all the golden exiles. Remember this is early 1990s, right? So I got accepted in 1989, 1990. And I just realized that wasn't my experience. Um, both of my parents left Cuba in the early 1950s. They were economic migrants. Um, they moved to New York to work in the factories. My parents met in New York. They got married in New York. Uh, my grandmother, on my mother's side, 
left Cuba because my grandfather had passed away suddenly and that's what they did to make money. And so she took her two daughters and moved to New York and they lived in Hell's Kitchen, they lived in all these areas, ended up in New Jersey for a while. And she, for most of her life was a domestic worker and she worked for a wealthy family on the east side during the day and at night she cleaned office buildings. So um, my parents married, they met, they married in New York. My brother was born in New Jersey. And then they had an uncle who had moved to California and my dad couldn't handle the cold anymore. And it was funny because uh, we ended up, my parents ended up in Southeast LA. And the reason for that, a lot of, <laughs> folks are like what was a Cuban doing in the southeast LA and it was because it you know it was what a lot of migrants do which is especially working class migrants is where's the barrio where are the people who understand me and so the barrio was east LA and so in southeast LA is actually cheaper than east LA so they were able to afford it and and my father got a job as a welder and so my experiences was always very working class and when we would talk around the table um my father who is you know darker skin trigueños they would say uh would always talk about and my mom as well her experiences about the racism that they experienced in New York it was always like you know, they wouldn't rent to me. Um, it was really hard finding a job. We would buy something and couldn't return it. People didn't want to sit next to us in the subway. You know, there was just so many stories about um, racism, anti-immigrant sentiment, not being able to speak English correctly, the accents. Um, you know, even I had a great aunt who said that she remembers riding a bus and someone commenting about how she smelled like garlic. So there was too much garlic, you know. Um, I have a story of my dad, which is one of my favorites, that he went to go look for a job, and they said, "Oh, we don't, we don't hire Puerto Ricans." And my dad was like, "Okay, I guess that's a quirk they have." And he goes, "Well, I'm not Puerto Rican. I'm, I'm Cuban." And they said, "Well, same shit, you know. We don't care." And so that those were the stories that I was heard. And my mom was funny. She used to say that when she arrived to this country she realized that she had been given a new first name and that first name was Goddamn because when she lived in New York, she was a Goddamn Puerto Rican. And then when she moved to California, she was a Goddamn Mexican. So this was the stuff that kind of shaped my parents and they were incredibly progressive, liberal, um, you know, did not buy into any of the conservative politics. So, also, I think what folks don't realize is that in LA, there was a large working class, racially mixed Cuban community. And there were Cuban clubs called, which we used to belong to, called El Santillero, which was named after Santiago de Cuba, which is where my mom was from, where she was born. There was El Olguinero, you know, uh, La Cofradilla. I used to play softball for La Cofradilla. So there was this really interesting kind of working class uh, Cuban community uh, in, in LA. So when I go to grad school, they're feeding me this narrative that my own personal experience just doesn't mesh up. So right there, I said, okay, what other histories are out there on Cubans that are not part of this narrative? And it was two things, to do that history, but also to challenge this narrative. And my dissertation was doing that. And then my first article, Latino Studies did that, um, which was um, challenging the Cuban exile model. And so I had been working on this book on New York for close to 20 years, because it was a lot of 
it was a lot of first time kind of sources being used to tell this history. And I was just gonna focus on the 19th century, but then I realized that we needed to know what they were coming into. And also I was curious, which is why I started in 1823, uh, but I was also curious on like what happened to this community? Cause a lot of studies that look at that golden era stop in 1902. And I'm like, no, there's something else. And then of course I met Melba <laughs> during my interviews, Melba Alvarado. Um, and she really, really with her oral histories, with her stories was like, there's all this history that no one's really writing about. And so that's why I ended up doing the work that I do. Excellent. It's so incredible to hear your story and the stage that set this all in motion for you because it didn't match up with the narratives that you encountered in the academy. And I think that's something that a lot of us encounter, asking the questions, what was before, what was after, knowing that this is not the only story that's out there and we need to add more to these stories. So in terms of the scope of your work, I know you talked about it in the introduction that you deal with Afro-Cubans in New York and you look at gentrification and spatial studies. So can you talk a little bit more about the realm of Afro-Latinos, Latinx studies in those areas of your work? Yeah, I mean, I think to me, I'm, I'm extremely fascinated. I'm, you know, I've been doing this work for a really, really long time as a historian. And I find history to be really fascinating because um, I always tell students, you know, there's a way that you, it's one of the ways that I feel I can change the narrative. I actually taught a course, they asked me to teach a course, really ethnic studies for STEM students. And I thought, well, I'll do it around legal policies, you know, <laughs> because you can't argue with legal policies, right? Like, you know, the Naturalization Act of 1790 or, you know, the Indian Removal Act of uh, 1830. So there's a way that history really gives us the tools to be able to say, hey, so there's this history, there's these sources, and there's two components to it, telling that history, writing that history, but always asking the question, why don't we know this, right? Why don't we? And so I know that my book, one of the things that I really wanted to stay away from was, which other, other works do do, which is, wow, look, there were black Cubans in New York in 1868 or 1870. I'd say that as a given, right? That's a given, because to be honest, as a diasporic expert, you know, black folks have been, have moved for many, many, many generations. They're everywhere, right? They're in Central America, they're in South America, they're in Caribbean, they're everywhere. In fact, the majority of, uh, of Afro-diasporic peoples are in Latin America, right? And so they're moving, they're going everywhere. That's why I start one of my chapters with, you know, that there's these Cuban social clubs that Afro-Cubans, mostly men are moving to, but some women in Haiti, right? Or in Jamaica. Um, so I was always interested in the narrative and theorizing that. And one of the theories that I started thinking about was that when I was reading a lot of these newspapers and, and studies didn't really talk about this and they still don't, is really the politics of whiteness and blancamiento and how that moves in with many of, so when you get folks who are anti-Spanish, a lot of them are very elite white landholding Cubans who come to New York because it's the destination of publications in 1830s, 1840s, who are really about whiteness. And so that's where Afro-Cubans kind of come into, right? This idea of 
whiteness and you know and so they really changed that discourse through newspapers through um, their work with La Colectiva, La Liga de Instrucción y Recreo, you know, they're the ones that I argue uh, help Jose Martí to be more expansive in his thinking, and he actually credits them, Rafael Serra, Sotero Figueroa, with that kind of thinking. And so for me, it was really about um, changing that. And then I argue in the book that once, um, you know, the war is over, uh, it's, and again, it's something that I would love for folks to expand on, I argue that the diasporic thinking that we had in New York really travels to Cuba. So Tomas Estrada Palma, who is a, who's a US citizen, is installed as the first president. And then, you know, Moro Delgado, who had been in the exile for years and was really a very powerful labor organizer and wrote a lot of pieces around labor, does, you know, the Marua Amendment, which causes all kinds of problems, as you well know. And I argue and I think about, because Eileen Held writes about this too, she mentions it briefly, that um, to what extent did diasporic thinking, that, that thinking about freedom and revolution transfer over to Cuba and didn't really sit well. <laughs> there was some challenges there. But, you know, so I was able to do that but yeah, I think that that's kind of what I'm, I'm interested in is looking at the crevices, the fragments, and I, and I write about that in the history and, and also the photo on the cover of the book um, really for me was kind of the theoretical kind of grounding of the book, which is um, to talk about, again, these histories that are there but don't get told or um, was that when I first met Mel Bagarado, um, the story goes, I went to the Schomburg in the early 1990s and I said, look, I want to interview women. I want to interview Afro-Cuban women. It's all these men, you know? And they said, um, well, we know this woman, Diana Lachantaner, who was the archivist there, who's now a dear friend. And we talk about this all the time. And uh, at the time I was just like, <laughs> this grad student that was bugging her and she was like, ah, get away from me. And so she gave me the phone number for Mel Balvarado and she goes, contact her. You know, she's been around for a long time, she might talk to you. And so folks don't realize I was this oral historian with this, you know, 1980s, we didn't have all the stuff we have now. And, and I had my recorder and my microphone and it's hot. And I'm on the subway to the South Bronx. <laughs> and I called her and she said, yeah, yeah, I'll talk to you. Just come, you know, come to the club. And, I'm at. and I show up to the club and she, it was just great. And so we ended up being very close. She was almost like a grandmother to me. Um, and I just loved her dearly. And we ended up talking for many, many, many years. She gave me a lot of interviews and every interview was different. In the beginning, it was like, eh. and then by the end of the interview, she really spoke her truth. But one of the things she kept telling me was that there había un club, el club Julio Antonio Mella, and it was founded in the 30s and there was all these radicals and it's communists. And for her, it was a heyday. It was like amazing. And I said, well, I'll research it. And I think this is what is fascinating about my, my field is that you start with that and then you say, okay. And it wasn't until I saw this photo that had been misfiled in the Center for Puerto Rican Studies. And then there's, you know, there's actually more sources there that I was like, oh, this club exists. And, and then on the writing, it said IWO, which was the International Workers Order. And that then gave me direction to like, okay, this is a, these are the sources I have to look at. And the same thing was with 
the chapter second on the Cuban anti-slavery society, which people write about now and so forth. But I first came across that, I'm gonna say about 15 years ago, I was at the I was at the New York Public Library and I was just looking at newspapers, anything that would say Cuban Negroes, you know, how all that stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, you have to use that terminology. There was this little paragraph, I think about this big, in one of the newspapers that talked about a Cuban anti-slavery society meeting in 1872. And I thought, whoa, what was this? And then I tracked it and tracked it. And then I went to the Library of Congress and I was able to find the proceedings of the first meeting. And then from there, began to do a lot of research on who was Samuel Scotterman, who was one of the founders of that meeting. He ended up being, he was Lena Horne's grandfather of all people and Henry Highland Garnett and, you know, and so it really is, if you like detective work to do that research, that's how it was, was that I didn't let go of Melba's idea of El Club Mella, El Club Julio Antonio Mella, which was named after Julio Antonio Mella, who was the, one of the founders of the Cuban Communist Party, which is why I was like, who would name a club <laughs> named after a Communist Party member in New York? But it was there and um, it was a really, really powerful club. The members of that club ended up founding the El Club Cubano Interamericano, the African-Americans on some level in New York, but had always been from very early on intellectuals and authors of their own experience, right? They wrote newspapers. They, they had a vision of racial equality and social justice. Uh, it wasn't given to them. And so by Jose Marti or so forth, they had it already. And um, so I started being fascinated by that and um, also thinking about uh, whiteness in ways that um, I'm still thinking about that and what that means uh, in terms of theory. Yes, I'm thinking about these visions of freedom and equality that you laid out in this historical sense. And I'm wondering if there are ways that you tie that to the urgency of today's movements for Afro-Latinx populations in particular. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think that as I was doing this research, a lot of the work and the research that I've done and the historical work and the reason that I stayed with it, it was a really tough book to write. I'm not gonna argue. Um, and I think it's also a tough book to understand. And so I have friends who have read it and say, it's really dense. <laughs> you know, I like it, Nancy, but you're saying 5 million things at once. And I say, good, because I think that that's what this history deserves, right? Not just cursory, cast of characters and look at this and really a deep understanding and thinking of theory and you know what I wanted to do with that is to say that Afro-Latinidad is not a new concept there is a history here and a valuable and valid history and I even was like if you look at the organizing the politics it's not just New York right um, there's also something going on in DC. So when I moved to DC, I gave a, a book talk at a local um, bookstore here, uh, the Potter's House, and who showed up? Rosa Grillo. And I'm just like, and Rosa, I had never met Rosa Grillo, but Rosa Grillo is um, Evilio Grillo's niece, right? And the famous Grillo family in DC. And so I write about Frank Grillo, right? And I write about, and that's what, and that's one of, I think that's her father or her uncle. And 
uh, I read about how he had a relationship with the CCI in Mel Alvarado, New York. And, and so as we were talking, she was like, yeah, my family came in 1920s. And so there was this, and then we did a talk with her and there's this huge Afro-Cuban, Afro-Latino community in DC. Um, and then there's, you know, in New Orleans as well. Um, and so there's just as well as Florida, of course, so that and I, I'd like to look more even in California that the idea was, you know, there is a history here. This is not a new phenomenon. This is not an entangling of, you know, identities and races and it, it, it there's always been there. Um, so that's why I thought the work was important in, in kind of grounding the movement that is happening now. And I also to, to educate other, you know, uh, colleagues who continue to look at Chicanos in California, Puerto Ricans in New York and Cuban, and, and, and to kind of get deeper. And I, I do, I think one of the calls that a lot of like Afro-Latinx scholars have done, which I agree, is to really interrogate this term of Latinx and, you know, what do we do with it and how we think about it, right? So. So for people investigating and interrogating these kinds of terms and these kinds of histories, what advice would you give to them to engage in that? What can they do right now? What can they do right now? Well, I think keep doing it. I mean, I can't give advice. This is, I mean, there's this new generation of scholars and thinkers that are inspiring me. Um, so, you know, uh, Miriam Jimenez-Roman, who is our godmother, she was, was a close friend. I loved her dearly as well. She was very close friends with Diana Lachantanet. Um, I spoke to her often and her and Juan when they'd come out to California, especially the Bay Area, when I was teaching at San Francisco State University, we brought them out. Um, we would always hang out, they'd come out. Um, I'd go to New York when I was at the Schomburg, have dinner at her house, have a conversation. And I think that she really was beginning to lay this groundwork of what does this kind of look like? You know, it's scholarship. She would say, you know, there's scholarship, there's history, but there has to be a rethinking, right? There has to be rethinking. Uh, among us as a community that um, the whiteness is a problem. You know, this idea of, of whiteness and she, that was, you know, a lot of racism. And I would talk and I said, I understand that racism very well. And so there is, and then she would say, well, then there's African-Americans, especially on the East Coast, who don't really understand Afro-Latinos and the history of Afro-Latinos and kind of thinking that there's like this new phenomenon. Are you Puerto Rican or are you Black? And having people choice, you know, choose between the both when they're both. This And so there's a there's also this idea of, and, you know, and, and we would talk about this often, is the, the persistence of the binary that that needs to also be um, interrogated and investigated and challenged on some level, you know, move beyond the binary. Yes, absolutely. And on that note, I think we're going to have to close out our conversation. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been incredibly eye-opening and I've learned so much about you as I continue to do every time that we talk. And I look forward to the next time. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Until we meet again, thank you so much, Michelle. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>